This tape features Bible teacher Gil Rude. Gil is senior pastor at Indian Hills Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. I, in effect, want to back up in our consideration today. We move through the book of Revelation. We've come to the end of chapter 19. But the material that I want to cover basically fits back in chapter 17 with some considerations of the apostate church. We won't be going to chapter 17 of Revelation itself, but the concept that I want to deal with would be related to the issue that I believe is developing very rapidly before our eyes with the ecumenical emphasis that is overtaking the church today and is drawing in in vast numbers professing believers in Jesus Christ as well. Perhaps a good place for us to begin would be in Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, page 1278. I was going through the book of Ezekiel in my regular readings this week, and this portion out of Ezekiel 33 stuck in my mind again. Perhaps I like the comparison of the prophet who speaks as one who has a beautiful voice. Ezekiel chapter 33, note verse 30. God speaking to Ezekiel. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. And they come, to you as my, they come to you as people come, and sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song sung by one who has a beautiful voice, and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. And for all of us as God's people who sit and study and are taught the Word of God, we have to be very careful that that does not just simply become a pleasant experience, that we do enjoy hearing the Word of God, but we fail to implement it in our lives. So it's like that beautiful song that is so appealing. It doesn't make any difference in our lives. We just enjoy hearing it. But the truth of the Word of God is to impact us greatly. It is to change us. For when we hear it, it is to be beautiful to our ears. Food to us. We're to long for it. But we are to take it in and heed it and obey it and submit to it. And that is the challenge for me as a preacher and for you as a congregation as well. We see a move today that is becoming an overwhelming tide to unite professing believers of all denominations and all beliefs. This includes all stripes of Protestants, and Roman Catholics as well, 
where there is a move that is trying to set aside our differences and focus together on what we agree about. And there's great danger when we begin to decide to unite about moral issues, social issues, political issues. Those things divert us from the focal attention of the Word of God. Some of the background for this has been laid over many years. The charismatic movement was very effective in uniting those who profess to believe in Jesus Christ and have a common experience in the Holy Spirit into a group that was willing to set aside all other doctrinal differences and disagreements. So you could be part of the charismatic movement and united with other charismatics, whether you were a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic or a Methodist or whatever else. Because all of our doctrinal differences were to be seen as not significant as long as we profess Jesus Christ and have experienced his spirit. Over time, that created an attitude of let's not be divisive about doctrine. The psychology movement, as it infiltrated and overtaken the church, has multiplied that feeling. Most of us don't know what leading Christian psychologists truly believe regarding their doctrines. We don't know whether they're Presbyterian or Baptist or Lutheran or Roman Catholic. They profess to be Christians and believe the Bible. So they unify Christians on the basis of their psychological influence, which are transdoctrinal anyway, since they don't come from the Scripture. So we have wave after wave of emphasis. Let's not emphasize doctrine. Let's not emphasize the details and specifics of the word, and over time we wear down as believers. And we begin to think maybe there is something to this, as long as we do agree about Christ. And you say, yes, we have to believe in Christ, and I say we have to believe in Christ. And we say we both want to be godly people, then even though we don't agree on the other things, we should appreciate one another and unite. There's a great emphasis today on the importance of unity and love as a manifestation of true Christianity. And without that, the world cannot see that we're truly Christians. So we have to set aside our differences. This is how we come to be able to have leading evangelical Protestants sign an agreement with Roman Catholic leaders saying we recognize one another as believers Christians, and we have major points of agreement and some doctrinal things to work out, and we'll do that over time. But we are going to agree that we won't try to convert one another any longer. If you're a Catholic and you're comfortable there, then I'm certainly not going to try to convert you because I recognize you as a Christian. Now, there's one major flaw, and we're going to talk about this tonight. They have not resolved the major issue. True evangelical Protestants believe that salvation is by faith, by grace through faith alone. True Roman Catholics believe that regeneration occurs by baptism. But of course, that's not enough to divide us. 
and we see what is happening. And our desire to unify and unite, we are throwing aside the real emphasis that the Word of God brings to a life. And I want to speak this morning about an issue that is close to home. And I believe it's my responsibility, along with the elders of this church, to exhort you in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 that they were to be on guard for the flock among which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. It's not always a task that the elders like or want to undertake, but God has determined the agenda. There's an area that I believe is significant and important, and I want to address it this morning and share with you the biblical reasons for my concern. And then you will have to evaluate it in light of the Scripture, what the Scripture says, and decide accordingly. But let me warn you, the instruction of Scripture is to follow your leaders. And I would encourage you in that. There is a movement sweeping the nation that is a men's movement that is called the Promise Keepers. And the local version of it is called Real Men. Although I understand that they're going to be changing their name to Promise Keepers, uh, one of the newspaper articles said. This movement has as its goal and desire to have men committed to Jesus Christ who desire to be godly. In fact, there are seven promises you make to become a promise keeper as a man. And this is just for men, because men don't grow with women. In fact, the women are now starting their own female version of the male promise keepers, I understand. Let me say at the beginning, I don't know that I have any particular disagreement with the promises these men are saying you make. So understand me here. I'm not saying I disagree with any of the specific promises they say you make. What my disagreement is is more fundamental and crucial to the survival of the gospel. And that is how is godliness produced in the life of a man. And when you undermine God's plan and the gospel of grace in developing godliness, then you have undermined the gospel. I'm not attacking the intention of these men. I'm not attacking their character. I'll be reading some verses, and all I have is what Paul has said about men that he dealt with. I am not making a judgment on whether these men are believers or not believers. Men we're dealing with profess to believe in Jesus Christ. What I want to deal with is the doctrine that they are promoting and the ministry they are attempting to develop. To be a member of the promise keepers, you promise to keep seven promises. Number one, honor Jesus Christ through prayer, worship, and obedience to his word. Number two, practice spiritual, moral, and ethical and sexual purity. Number three, build strong marriages and families through love, protection, and biblical values. Number four, support the mission of my church by honoring and praying for my pastors and by actively giving of my time and resources. Number five, break racial and denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. I would have some problems with that one. Because it blows right by, are any of the doctrinal differences significant? 
we assume they're not in comparison to our overriding goal. Number six, influence my world. Being obedient to the great commandment, Mark 12, 30 and 31, and great commission, Matthew 28. Pursue vital relationships with a few other men, understanding that I need my brothers to help me keep my promises. And I would find number seven not to be biblical at all. Now, those are the seven things that make you a promise keeper. I mentioned this is an ecumenical movement. Involves men of all stripes. I have here the membership uh, churches, involved churches from our city of Lincoln. And uh, among the list are a whole variety of everything, all stripe of uh, churches, I guess. Uh, Lutheran churches, Bible-believing churches, as we would note them. Uh, number of charismatic churches. Church of the Risen Christ, Church of Christ, Presbyterian, a number of Methodist churches, number of Episcopal churches, all joined together. Uh, this goal, in fact, the founding group that first met in Lincoln included Catholic, Lutheran, I believe Episcopalian. They say all these come together that have been divided by major doctrinal, major doctrinal differences over the years. Now all of a sudden we want to have men be real men. Everything is washed out. These differences now won't divide us any longer. I think there's some real problems with that. Let me just read you uh, some other comments from their brochure put out by the Promise Keepers. And this will be a background. Then I want to go to the scripture with you. Regarding the meeting that they had in uh, Colorado, 50-some thousand at the stadium. One pastor wrote, I experienced the true oneness among brethren of different faiths. And now, that statement ought to cause some questions. I experienced the true oneness among brethren of different faiths. What we're really saying is we created an environment where people had certain feelings and emotions brought to the fore. But about the reality of that oneness, I don't know, because we were men of different faiths. And I would have to talk to you whether we have true oneness produced by the Spirit. I mean, when I sit in the living room and watch a movie with other people, we share a common experience. And if that's a sad movie, we share the similar common experience. And we may cry together and laugh together. In a sense, we had a oneness, but that's not a oneness produced by the Spirit of God. So how we can say that we had true oneness among brethren of different faiths, I have a question. And I'm going to just read some uh, paragraphs to go quickly here. We believe that uh, Promise Keepers is dedicated to uniting men. Dedicated to uniting men. We believe that we have a God-given mission to unite men who are separated by race, geography, culture, denomination, and economics. We reserve something greater than humanistic unification, more powerful than political equity. We rather we are compelled to pursue biblical reconciliation, loving our brother as an expression of our love for God. Now, what's going to happen here, as I would see it, is the same thing as we're going to see with the Roman Catholic Evangelical Accord. They have not clearly resolved what makes you a brother in Christ. 
We've already moved to the next step. We've got to break down our differences. Overcome racial, economic, denominational barriers. No, we have to start out with the gospel. We are dedicated then to addressing the division that has separated the body of Christ for too long. Well, we have to talk about which divisions they are that have separated the professing body of Christ for too long. I mean, we just want to blow by those divisions. The Protestant Reformation was of no value, had no purpose. The differences we would hold with the doctrine, for example, of the Episcopal Church is of no value. We're dedicated then to addressing the division that has separated the body of Christ for too long. We are committed to call men to reconciling Christ, to live as one. It compels us to accept the essential value of every believer, understanding that we need each other to be complete. In the context of covenant relationships, and I read you the six promises or covenants that you make, a man willingly grants other men the right to inquire about his relationship to God, his commitment to his family, his sexuality, and his financial dealings. That's why one pastor has said this is a movement to feminize men. Men have to do is learn to get involved in one another's lives. And we don't add the next statement, but basically like the women do. I don't know that essential for my growth as we look at the word is giving other men the right to inquire about my sexuality. We're going to talk about the scripture on this. If it means I'm looking at sexually lewd literature or pornography, obviously that's a problem. You don't create a godly man by putting up an external standard, thou shalt not look at pornography. The dealing with sexual deviation of any kind, immorality of all kinds, is a result of the Spirit of God producing true godliness in the life. So want to be careful. We'll talk more about this. The strength of our nation depends on the character of our people. Now, some of it will become a national movement impacting the nation. And what are we going to do for the strength of our nation? They say it's not a political movement, but it's, it is very concerned with political impact. In fact, it was started by the founder who said he was concerned about the moral decline of our nation. One psychologist has said, our very survival as a nation will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home. Now, that's a banner you can fly by today. But I would like to have scripture in verse. Promise keepers emphatically agrees. I don't know whether our nation will survive no matter what men. I was thinking down through some of the nations that I've studied in history that had strong male leadership in all areas that we're very godless nations and we're a disaster for evangelical Christianity. We're becoming a political force to impact the nation. That's why it's important that we have masses of people. We're going to be heard. We believe that the Christian men of America can provide the explosive momentum needed to help our nation achieve God's purposes for this generation. I don't think the scripture says anything about our nation achieving his purposes. We believe that the Christian men of America can provide the explosive momentum 
needed to help our nation achieve God's purposes for this generation. God's going to achieve his purposes with this nation regardless what the men do. And as I search the scripture, the only plan God has for us in this nation is the explosive force of the gospel that transforms lives from the inside out. And of course, the only way for us to make the necessary commitments to these conference sites is with your financial partnership. And already, income is in the millions. It becomes a force. And now we have other organizations like Christian businessmen joining with them and we create a massive force. My concern is we have, have we created a biblical force? We'll look at that in just a moment. We would be neglecting the place where the influence of men is needed most in our country, our inner cities. If we are going to be a movement that is really going to effect change in this country, we need to be concerned about the people and places where the most need is, and that's in the racial problems in the inner city. Phase one, there's a two-phase in these men-to-men relationships. Phase one focuses on meeting with a squad of men two to four times a month. Phase two involves meeting once a month with men of different ethnic or denominational backgrounds. You see, we're going to break down these differences. I'm not saying that we don't have some real problems with our racial division and so on. I'm saying the way to do this is we're not going to legislate now. At least once a month you meet across ethnic or denominational barriers as though that's the way you resolve certain differences. And then it tells you how this all gets in. Of course, now this has to all be done on the guise of two things. Number one, the focus is Jesus Christ. Number two, we're here to help the church, not compete with the church. There's never been a parachurch organization that didn't start out with that kind of premise. We're here to help the church, support the church. And we'll have a point man in your church, and he's the critical link between the men's ministry of his church and promise keepers. He initiates, organizes, and supports the men's ministry of his, of his church. He acts as a conduit for resources, including materials, national conferences, and training seminars provided by promise keepers and other contributing ministries. You see what's happening now. The church is submitting itself to this. Now you have to be sure what kind of influence is going to be brought into this church. We're going to see we fought an unpleasant battle over the issue of psychology and the integration of psychology in the Bible. Now some people say, why is Gill's against this as well as that? Well, you find the leading spokesman, a number of the leading spokesmen in this movement are psychologists. The breakfast that was held in the city here, involving hundreds of men this past weekend. Speaker was what? Christian psychologist. He said, we fight that battle for nothing, and then people say, why is Gill against this? Because I don't say the way you produce godliness is go put him under a Christian psychologist who wants to talk about masculinity at the crossroads and the man and his emotions. All right, I have to get off of this in a moment. But I want you to have the, the background. The promise keeper acknowledges the current division in the church and is discovering that God wants Christian men of all ethnic and denominational heritages, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, to stand together in honor of Jesus Christ. You see, we have to resolve here. Christian men is what? Christian men of all denominations. Well, I believe you can be a Christian man in different denominations. I think believe some men are Christians in some denominations in spite of being there, not because of it or related to it. All of a sudden, we put this denominational difference in the context of ethnic differences and rich and poor differences, and that will enable us all to stand to the honor of Jesus Christ. Maybe yes and maybe no. We'll see what the scripture says about that. 
And of course, it's repeated, each man willingly grants the others the right to inquire about his relationship to God, his commitment to his family, his sexuality, and his financial dealings. Now, we have those things to agree on. Uh, let me, uh, here's something else we can agree on. Article I clipped out of yesterday's paper. Church helps strengthen families. It's easy to talk about the importance of family. In a world filled with hate, drugs, AIDS, suicide, and a host of other ills, few would deny that love, trust, and strong family bonds are virtues worth working toward. This church, known for its heavy family emphasis, does more than talk about it. It provides families options and programs that encourage them to spend time together, cultivate friendships, building strength. And then it goes through what it does. Some of the things they encourage. Take time to develop friendships within the family. Have regularly scheduled family activities that involve all family members. Attend church services together with the whole family. Choose television and movies carefully. If a situation arises that goes against your moral values, teach family members this is not appropriate behavior. Encourage each family member to set a good example for other family members. Create situations where family members can learn to love each other. Could we not agree on all that as a church? Couldn't you agree with that as a believer? The problem is this is the program of the Mormon church. You see, we do agree on the family, on many areas with them. That is not enough for me to unite with them. So I have to be careful that we haven't picked up something and allow it to be defined broadly enough that people of all stripes can get in. I agree with much of what the Mormons say about the family. No, I could you not unite with them. I'm not saying the promise keepers want to unite with the Mormons. What I'm saying is the principle is the same. We look for things we can agree on and then decide not to focus on disagreements. I want to focus with you on what the Scripture says about God's plan. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're just going to highlight this passage. We've been in it. We try to do it about once a year. Ephesians chapter 4. And we pick up with verse 11, following the ascension of Christ. He gave gifts to his body, the church, to enable the local church to function in a manner and a way that pleases God. And again, what happens with all these other organizations, they want to focus on what we call the universal church. The problem is the scripture focuses on the local church. And as I've shared with you, out of about 114 references... Using the word church in the New Testament, over 90 of those references talk about local churches. We simply blow right by what God says about the church and his plan for the church. He gave, verse 11, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Some of the gifts. These gifts in verse 11 particularly have to do with the teaching and instruction, giving forth of the word of God. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. First problem I have with organizations like this. Not just this one, but others is. God's plan. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. How are we going to produce godly men and godly women? I come to Ephesians 4, and I say there are gifted men given to the church who teach and preach the Word of God. That nourishes and nourishes the saints so that they are equipped to do the work of serving 
to build up the body of Christ. That brings maturity where we become conformed to the image of Christ, verse 13. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The pattern is not so difficult. Verse 15 picks it up again. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. He is the head over the church. Here we have the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, as the word of God, the truth is ministered in this body, the parts of the body are nourished and equipped and they function as they should, just like your physical body. And there is a supernatural built-in process that causes the body to be matured. And that means each individual in the body. Now, I have to say, humanly speaking, this is not an effective plan. The New Testament was not yet complete, and the church was having all kinds of difficulties, struggles, and battles. We're going to look at the book of Galatians in a moment. Book of Colossians, Paul had to rebuke error. 1 Corinthians, difficulty. In our study of Revelation, we studied the letters of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. That's a pretty sick group. I mean, those that aren't rebuked seem to be struggling to keep their nose above water. And the message is, don't get discouraged. And the others are in sad shape and have doctrinal problems. You think the message of the Lord of the churches, the resurrected Christ as he walked through was, I've got a better plan. Not at all. The instruction to each church is what? Straighten up. Get it together. We don't have an option to decide, look, we've got a better plan. Let's get all the men together with a commitment we want to be men. We want to be godly and we love Christ. You can't break off a part of the body, set it out here, and mature it. You can't do that. You can't take the men apart from the functioning of the body and produce godly men. You produce an appearance of godliness, but not biblical godliness. That's what we have to be careful of. All right, come over to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. That's just before the book of Ephesians. You know, we not only are passing over the church, and we have the psychologists all involved in such a movement, and talk about the whole emphasis on men, you have to bring psychology into it, because that's not the way the scripture approaches it, not that there aren't things said to men. But we also have the overwhelming involvement of the charismatic movement. There was a time the church recognized the importance of the doctrinal differences between charismatic and non-charismatic. But you know, the devil doesn't stop. He just keeps at it. The founder of Promise Keepers was a Roman Catholic who converted to the Vineyard Movement, the Signs and Wonders Movement, which is a strong charismatic movement founded by John Wimber. His pastor, pastor of a vineyard church, and sits on the board of the Promise Keepers. He is a man 
who believes he gets direct revelation from God. And let me read you one of the direct revelations this pastor got. This is the pastor of the founder of the Promise Keepers. And he sits on the board of uh, the Promise Keepers. Let me ask if we have doctrinal, enough doctrinal agreements to minister together. Here's his testimony. The Lord has appointed me as a lookout and shown me some things that I want to show you. The Lord spoke to me and said, we believe in direct revelation. So this pastor said, the Lord spoke to me and said, what you saw in the Beatles, the English singing group of bygone years, John Lennon and so on, what you saw in the Beatles, the gifting and the sound that they had was from me. It was my purpose to bring forth through music a worldwide revival that would usher in the move of my spirit in bringing men and women to Christ. Now, I have to admit, having grown up in the Beatles' day, I failed to ever make any connection between them beating it out on Ed Sullivan and God's plan for worldwide revival. But God revealed it to this man. He claimed that God gave him a visual of a Beatles conference where the audience, instead of screaming the name of the Beatles, were this time screaming the name Jesus. And that millions will be saved through a reintroduction of the anointed music. They say, well, you nitpick, you. Uh, you know, my concern is we nip something in the bud. We're going to look at Galatians. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, when the whole lump gets leavened, it's messy. When psychology permeated our body, it was very difficult to deal with. It's much easier and much more necessary to deal with it early. If we've got an ungodly, unbiblical mixture here, then any guise of this is going to produce godly men is not true. Now, I'm not questioning their motives. I'm not questioning their intention. I'm not even questioning at least a number of the promises they want to make. I think that's not the way you produce godliness. You cannot bypass the Word. Oh, we want to bypass the Word. Oh, we just want to pick out what? A couple of major things that we could agree on. You you can't pick and choose. You know what Paul said as he gave his parting words to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20? My hands are clean from the blood of all men because I taught you some of the major highlights of God's Word. What? I taught you the whole counsel of God. Does that mean there's no room for disagreements? No, we have disagreements. And that's why, in some cases, we cannot work together. The disagreements are too great. A man who thinks he got a revelation regarding the Beatles' music has too great a difference theologically for me to join together in ministry. I have too strong a conviction about the finality of the Word of God and its completeness. Now, I'm going to say to the men at Indian Hills, well, you know, I don't want to cause trouble. You know, we've got the people who are going to be the silenders. We're not going to support it. We're not going to speak against it. Oh, I guess if you had a child molester in your neighborhood, too, you'd think it would be wrong to point it out to your kids to stay away from it. I mean, hopefully they won't. You know, I mean, just work out. But somehow you want to point it out in the church, and you're a troublemaker. Well, we're at Galatians. Let's talk about Paul the troublemaker. The problem with the Galatians, the Galatian church was, and this is a reoccurring problem wherever Paul goes, the Judaizers. I want you to note here, 
If you are going to emphasize points of agreement and ignore your disagreement, Paul had much more in agreement with the Judaizers than he had with the overwhelming portion of people in the Roman Empire in his day. The Judaizers were people who professed to believe in Jesus Christ, who believed it was necessary to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, who believed in the work of the Holy Spirit, at least in their doctrine, but who also believed that the commandments of the law were necessary for salvation, were necessary for sanctification. Now, you have far more in agreement with a Judaizer, if you're a Christian, than you do with a pagan Roman who's going to a temple and having sexual relationships with a prostitute as part of his worship, who's worshiping the Roman emperor as God. I mean, let's face it, the whole empire. I mean, we're totally overwhelmed. At least we have some major points of agreement with the Judaizers. They know, they claim you have to believe in Christ. They believe the Bible is the word of God. Even what they say is also necessary for salvation and growth comes from the Word of God. It's the Mosaic Law. At least it's part of God's revelation. We have much more in common with the Judaizers than we do with the pagan Romans, the pagan Corinthians, the pagan Galatians. Paul says we have nothing of significance in agreement. Look at verse 6. Paul begins, I am amazed. And this encourages me. Galatians 1.6. Did I never tell you where we were? <laughs> Galatians 1.6. I've been here for a while. <laughs> Paul says, I am amazed. And that word amazed, in a word we might say, I am dumbfounded. I am flabbergasted. A word that would give you the idea. Paul is saying, I just can't believe this is really happening to you Galatians. I think that encouraging. I have to say, I look around at some professing believers, some professing believers have been exposed to the Word, and I've got to say, I am dumbfounded at what they're falling for. Amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You know what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say, you're deserting my teaching. You're deserting the one who called you to salvation. Well, Paul is a serious issue. This Judaizing heresy. And Paul believes the Galatians are believers. We don't have time to work through the passages here. But his conviction comes out again and again that they are believers, but they're deluded believers. Under the influence of these false teachers. You're deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another. There are two different Greek words for another. We have one translated different and one translated another. A different gospel at the end of verse 6 means uh, one of a different kind, another kind. Which in English, we'd have to modify it. We'd say, uh, let me give you, here's another one of the same kind. Now, I'll give you another ball, but it's of a different kind. The Greeks have two different words for another. One means another of the same kind, one means another of a different kind. Well, you have a different gospel. You're deserting Christ for a different gospel. It's not anything like my gospel. They're not related. Now, keep in mind, the Judaizers taught you had to believe in Christ. Taught that the Bible was the Word of God. They simply also taught that the commandments also were necessary. Paul said, that's not related to my gospel. But wait, Paul, they both talk about faith in Christ. 
I don't care what points of similarity are. It's not related to my gospel at all. It's not another one. Verse 7, that's the word another, another one like mine. It's not another variation of my gospel. We're not talking about a different emphasis. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Accursed. From the Old Testament to put under the ban. You've been in our Old Testament study. Something that's devoted to destruction. It has to be destroyed. Let him be put under the ban. He's anathema. He's under the curse of God. He's doomed to hell. That's what happens to anyone who preaches any other gospel. Wait, Paul, is this another gospel? I mean, this is just saying believe in Christ plus all be, so be circumcised. If you're a believer, observe the laws concerning days and foods. Paul says you're cursed and doomed to hell. You say, wow. I mean, does it have to be that tight? Well, he says, as I say, as, as we have said before, and that would seem to refer to what he had taught them, not just the preceding verse, but what he had taught them when he was there before. What I have told you at a previous time, I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which we have, you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, if I was, or am I striving to please men? If I'm still striving to please, trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Jump over to chapter 6, quickly. Verse 12. Those who desire to make a good show in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Something happening here? We can bring all stripes of Protestants together, Roman Catholics together, and all of a sudden the offense of being a true Christian is lost. The offense of the cross is lost. Why? We have found a common point of agreement. Men being men. Paul said, if I tried to function like that, I'd no longer be a servant of Christ. There is no room for compromise. I know people think I'm too black and white. I'm too narrow. I met with someone when we were in California. I think he's a little narrow in me. It did my heart good. <laughs> I hope he lives to be 200. <laughs> you know, we come to these basic issues. It's the gospel that's at stake. It's being a servant of Christ. It's not mine to determine. God has set down his plan, his program. Woe be to the person who thinks he can improve on it. We're going to stay in Galatians. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The issue here is circumcising Titus. Titus was a Gentile. And the Judaizers, there's pressure to circumcise Titus. Paul could have resolved the difficulty by just getting Titus circumcised. Then it would have been a non-issue. Verse 3, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You see the issue with Paul Jesus? The truth of the gospel and its endurance. If we had sacrificed on this point, we would have sacrificed the truth of the gospel. Then what would you have? You mean over just the issue? Don't we agree? If Titus has trusted Christ, he's saved. And circumcising him or not circumcising him? Paul circumcised Timothy. But he won't go to Titus. 
because it would be a sacrificing of the gospel when I imply that this is part of salvation or sanctification. The Judaizers, we're, we're dealing with the Galatians who are believers, but we're dealing with the issue of how they're going to be sanctified, not only how salvation occurs. So come over to chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, verse 1. That doesn't mean, that word foolish is not the word that means a lack of intelligence. It means unthinking. You unthinking Galatians. So it's not that they don't have the intelligence for it. They're just not using their heads. You foolish, unthinking Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Will they put you under a spell? Will they pulling the wool over your eyes? Tricked you? Before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly betrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by a hearing of faith? How did you get the Holy Spirit? By keeping the law? No, I believed the Word of God concerning Jesus Christ. The Spirit came and took up residence in my life. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now, here's the issue, and here's where I see the parallels very clearly laid out. What we're saying with the Judaizers is you must believe in Christ. Paul says, you, got, you believed in Christ, you got the Spirit. Now you think you're going to come over here and obey certain rules or regulations to become godly. How did you get saved? How did you get the Spirit? How does the Spirit work? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So the same way you're saved, you must grow. By faith, believing the Word, the revelation God has given well, we're back to Ephesians 4. The ministry of the Word, equipping the saints, speaking the truth in love. We believe it, which involves submitting to it, appropriating it in the, spirit of, in the power of the Spirit into our lives. That produces sanctification, growth. What makes you think you're saved by faith and you grow by making seven promise commitments? Is this a major thing? Well, we're saying men will become godly if they will bind themselves in an agreement as men, sign this promise keeper's agreement of these seven promises, and agree that these men can ask me questions then about my sexuality, my finances, and so on. See what we want to do? We want to set down again external things to which I must agree. And when I agree to these things, and we got all these men doing it, now we're really going to produce godly men. What have we done? We've become Judaizers. It's no longer through the systematic intake of the Word that we grow. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, page 1801. Page 1801, Colossians chapter 2. Problem Paul was dealing with with the Colossians? Judaizers. Same problem. People want to come in and say, yes, believe in Christ. We believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. We believe in the Word of God. You believe in the Word of God. We've got much more in common than we have in disagreement. And besides, we want to even be more effective. I mean, at least they're not pulling back from the basics. They're simply adding something. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one... Colossians 2.16. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. 
No, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Christian rewards are at stake here. By delighting in self-abasement, worship of angels, and so on. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head. That's where we were in Ephesians 4, remember? What's our relationship to the head? Holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. That's Ephesians 4. You see, they want to constantly curtail the process of growth. How does growth occur? It's within the context of the body, the church of Colossae. The word being ministered, the parts functioning under the authority of the head. Growth. But some people want to come in and what? Add these rules, these regulations, these guidelines, these commitments. That will produce growth. Verse 20, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and so on? Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure. The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now notice this. We can get an appearance of godliness, an appearance of spirituality, but is absolutely no help in building true maturity. It is no help in dealing truly with fleshly indulgence. You know what the problem is? We as Christians today are far more comfortable with Judaizers than we are with the pagan of the world. And at least they have some standards in a day when the standards have collapsed. But keep in mind, what is it, ten of the first eleven Roman emperors were openly homosexual. You think Paul and the believers in those early churches wouldn't delight to have more people that would agree on some moral principles and standards? But we cannot compromise. There's only one way. Not my way, not your way. God's way is revealed in the Word. They have to be sure of the appearance of wisdom. It appears to be a good thing. It looks good. And then we hear testimonies and praise God for every person that gets saved. One of my best friends in Philadelphia got involved with the Jehovah Witnesses. Through his involvement with Jehovah Witnesses, we began to talk about the Bible and I had the opportunity to present the gospel. He eventually became a Christian went on to seminary. But you know, I have never told anyone that they ought to start attending Jehovah Witness meetings so that they could become Christians. The grace of God does sometimes work in strange ways. So I praise God for everyone who will get saved in any of these kind of meetings, for families that are reunited. But if we're not careful, we will become much happier when we have Judaizers or Pharisees even, because at least they have moral principles, they'll stand against abortion, they'll stand for schools and public education in a moral sense. They will, they will. And I said, well, what do we have? You know, we're dealing with the eternal destiny of men's souls. We're dealing with how you produce godly character in the life of a child of God. It has to be the biblical way. I realize maybe these men had good intentions like we went through with psychology. These Christian psychologists not really want to serve God, not really do what's right. Don't they have good intentions of wanting to bring the best of their knowledge from the secular world to the Bible? Don't they want to be helpful? Oh, that's irrelevant. You know, Paul doesn't get in here and say, I appreciate these Judaizers. They have good intentions. He goes right after them. Good intentions don't count. 
Remember how the book of Revelation is going to end? Woe be to the person who adds anything to the word of God or takes anything away. Still in Galatians, we have to move on. Come back to Galatians. Chapter 3, Galatians, verse 28. We talk about in the body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, as we've noted, there are different roles and responsibilities that the Scripture does focus on for men and women. We've dealt with those. But as far as the body as a body is concerned, and God's plan for growth, there are not two plans. We don't have a plan for growing slaves to maturity in Christ and a plan for growing free men. A plan for growing Jews in Christ and a plan for growing Greeks. A plan for growing men and a plan for growing women. So that becomes a distortion. The unity and oneness we have in the body. We recognize the diversity, but growth occurs when the diversity functions together, together in the body. Come to chapter 4, verse 8. However, at the time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I mean, you cannot go back to a rule system, a promise system. Any more than you could be saved that way, you can't be sanctified that way. Now, many of the things they have as their goal by making these promises are the result of godliness in the life. Godly men do not pursue pornography. Godly men do not mistreat their wives. Godly men do not ignore their children. Therefore, you do not create godliness by getting men to commit the promises not to do those things. Great godly men, by number one, having them believe the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then submit themselves to the word in the context of the functioning of the body and all its parts so that they might be built to maturity, so that they will have the character of Christ and they will treat their wives properly, they will treat their children properly, they will have a proper view of sexuality. We're going to take the results of godliness, make them an external set of rules or promises or whatever, because we're in the framework, we have such a diversity here theologically, we'd tear ourselves apart if we got down to try to go through the Scripture in any depth. So let's agree on Jesus Christ, on the Bible, and on men ought to be men. And we want to get over denominational barriers. And, I mean, we don't have as much in common in this organization as the Judaizers did with Paul. But Paul never saw a possibility of uniting together. Verse 16, and take this from me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Um, now, I don't want to be your enemy. Paul didn't want to be their enemy. But should I be your enemy by telling you the truth? This is what I say. If what I say is not biblical, not true to the word, then just scratch it out, ignore it, and go on. But if I told you the truth, I ought not to be your enemy. You ought not to be angry with me for telling you the truth. Chapter 5. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, Paul feels strongly here. Verse 12, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. means amputating the male organ. I say some strong things that get people upset. I never said anything like that from this book. Paul says, these Judaizers, I wish they got all the way, not just circumcise the foreskin. Let them do the job right. Cut it off. Hmm. I mean, this is a serious issue we're talking about. We've got to face reality. It's not that we look for things we agree with. We've got to be discerning and look what we don't agree with. A little leaven leavens the whole dump of dough. That's why I'm dealing with this now. It's relatively new. It's like trying to deal with the psychology issue early on. I don't see, I don't think. That's why God gives spiritual leaders. Hopefully they are discerning. I don't want the place to become permeated. I don't want our men to get all caught up in things, then go submit themselves to the teaching of this charismatic and this psychologist and get an idea that growth comes. I'll commit to these promises. We'll interact as men and I'll have God in this. You'll have a superficial appearance of God in this because you will have conformed to a standard that was set down as though what a man should be. It has an appearance. Colossians 2 says, the true godliness is produced from the inside out. And that's by the pattern we saw, like in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 16 of chapter 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There's Paul's solution. You're not what you ought to be as a man, you're not what you ought to be as a woman, walk by the Spirit. He doesn't say what you ought to do is get the men together, what you ought to do is get the women together, not together together but separate together and then you ought to have a young people's here and this and here this here this we start all these things to help God out the one thing is within the body there is not a place for different emphasis in ministry that ought to be within the framework of the body functions together as a body and you break these out of the body then we make all kind of other adjustments and we're just not in the biblical pattern any longer First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 puts it, the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we're about. We as a church are to be the pillar and support of the truth. Why are we always against things? I say to myself, and I say to the Lord, Lord, why are we are? I can't tell you the agony I had this week over this message. In fact, when Marilyn went to bed last night, I got my message together on the kingdom. She said, what are you preaching tomorrow? I said, I don't know. I may take my message to the kingdom, to church with me tomorrow. I may take this with me tomorrow. I feel like I just delight in attacking something. It's part of what I believe God says has to be done. Uh, the elders are to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We are to be the pillar and support of the truth. It would make no sense for us to go through all the agony. And I appreciate you have stood through the conflict and we've battled the issue of psychology and the integration of psychology and scripture make no sense for me now to say. Isn't it wonderful? You can go over here and sit under Christian psychologists. You can go to one of these mass meetings and listen to Gary Smalley, Christian psychologist. I was talking to my son Greg, and then we're done. On the phone. One of his friends from Master Seminary was invited to go to the Promise Keepers rally a couple weeks ago at Anaheim Stadium. 55,000 men. This man took extensive notes, which are supposed to be faxed to me this week. (laughs) 
He said, you know, it started out okay. And the man got up and opened the scripture. We're going to talk about Moses and the building of the altar. He says, it went okay. He says, all of a sudden, we started to get bizarre. Somewhere along the line, the rocks for the altar represented men. And men are to be rocks. And we went from here to there. The next thing we knew, we were into this sexuality of men and the uh, phallic orientation that I've mentioned about the book that was given out in Colorado. The Promise Keepers Rally there and worshiping God as men in accord with our sexuality. He said, he got so bizarre, so contrary to Scripture, and the Scripture was so misused and abused. Then all of a sudden, then they presented the gospel. He said, by that time, the Scripture had been so distorted that the gospel had no impact. I said, I'm concerned for this. But how are you going to decide who speaks? I mean, we're, we're crossing denominational barriers. I can't close you out because you might get up and say, in addition to the Word of God, I got a revelation from God last night. Well, all of a sudden, then, we are open to all kind of input. Would I be a shepherd of this flock if I said, yeah, and the men here should just go out and sit under that? Would I want my own children in my home to go out and be exposed to all this kind of stuff? There might be harm. No, I feel as the one given oversight of them, I have to warn them, I have to caution them. The elders of this church feel that responsibility. And I hope that you will take it in that light and... Uh, I praise God for everyone that gets saved through this. I praise God for any of the ministry of the Word that takes place. But I have to say, in light of my review of the materials that have come out, in light of my understanding of the Word of God, it doesn't produce true godliness in men. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways. There are more fun ways. There are more spectacular ways. There are more impressive ways. But God has set down His program. He's chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the things of no account in the sight of the world, to accomplish his purposes. They center in his church. They center in his word. They center in the function of the body of Christ. Let's join together in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us and died for us. Lord, thank you for men and women in this country who are burdened and concerned. Lord, I pray that this burden and concern might cause them to turn to your word, to turn to the truth that's revealed here, to turn to the plan that you've set down. Lord, I pray we as a local church might be careful to be biblical. Lord, I pray that we might be careful about being arrogant and proud. That I might not see myself as having greater insight and understanding than anyone else. That we as a church might not become puffed up with knowledge and fail to have true love. Lord, may we manifest love toward fellow Christians that we disagree with. Lord, in it all, may we not lose the focus that is set before us in your word. May we have the passion and commitment of the Apostle Paul to lay hold of the gospel, to be true to your word, to see salvation and sanctification as centering in the plan that you've set forth in your word. Use us to honor yourself, and may the result of it be men and women who are godly in their character who manifest godliness in their conduct, in order that you might be honored, you might receive all the praise for all that's done.
We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.